Well, we're jumping into the book of Romans today. Uh, so if you've got a Bible handy, I'm going to open that to the first chapter of Romans, and you can follow along as we read and as we uh, reflect back on the text during the sermon. Uh, boy, I've always had the book of Romans in the uh, category in my mind of fools rush in where angels fear to tread, uh, because it's intimidating. Uh, it's, it's a long letter, it's a dense letter, it's complicated, and uh, you can see why people really uh, become microscopic when they look at it. There was a, a famous English preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones who spent 23 sermons on the text we're using today. One sermon. Well, that's not really true. I'm going to take the last two verses as a separate sermon next week. But 23 sermons on one passage in Romans. And uh, so... And it bears that. We're not going to do it that way because I probably won't live long enough. But um, just know that we'll probably miss some things that are important and interesting as we go through. But the big theme of the book, the reason he's writing it, is to try to help these Christians who live in Rome fit themselves into the world as Christians. It's like, to use St. Augustine's terms, the ultimate city of man, which is Rome, the center of the empire, and here are Christians who are now citizens of the city of God, which is Jesus' kingdom, his church, his family, and ultimately uh, his new creation. How do you, as a citizen of the city of God, fit yourself into the city of man? How do you make life work that way? How do you fit in? How do you think of yourself in those circumstances? And so that's what he addresses uh, right as he starts into um, this passage, introduction to the letter. Uh, he addresses these themes, and that's what we're going to look at today. So let me pray for us, and then we'll hear from God's Word. Father, we ask that you would uh, give us open hearts and open minds to you. We pray that you would speak to us through your Word. We are paying attention to it because uh, we believe it comes from you, and that you've given it to us because you love us. And so we ask that you would use it in our lives today, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be reading from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among 
the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of God. St. Ambrose uh, usually gets the credit for uh, saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. It's gotten a lot of traction down through the years. Um, one I like is from the hardworking Americans, and they say, when in Rome, shoot Roman candles, and that way nobody will think you're crazy. So that may be even better advice. Um, Flannery O'Connor, who's from Milledgeville, Georgia, uh, famously said, when in Rome, do as you'd done in Milledgeville. In other words, don't be above yourself and be who you are. Also good advice. When in Rome, do as you'd done in Milledgeville. Well, the book of Romans is the when in Rome book for Christians. What do you do when you live in Rome and you're trying to be a follower of Jesus Christ and committed to him? Uh, Paul's writing to this church about this. He didn't plant the church. He'd never been there yet. Um, he's very eager to go, as you heard in the reading, um, because it's it's super important city politically as the center of the empire, but also is important to him uh, missionally because he was wanting the church in Rome to be his base for uh, going further west, uh, out even to Spain, uh, to go and preach missionary trip. And we're not sure whether he ever got to Spain or not. It's, it's likely that he did. We don't really know for sure, but he wanted Rome to be his base for that. So it was important to him that this church be healthy and grounded. And so that's what he's doing before he gets to visit them, is trying to shore them up and help them understand how do you fit yourself into such a place? How do you live as a Christian in a place like Rome? Um, you're probably gonna have people thinking that you're crazy if you're serious at all about your faith. Um, but his advice to him basically is this, it's not as poetic, but it's when in Rome, do as you'll do in the city of God. Do as you'll do in your true home in the new creation. And so that's the advice he gives. So that rules out a couple of other options of what to do when you're in Rome. And that's kind of the, what we'll use for structure in the sermon today. The first point is, when in Rome, don't do as the Romans do. Don't do as the Romans do. Meaning, don't get sucked into the, the imperial cult and the way they think about politics in Rome. Um, imperial cult, worship of the Caesars, uh, it's hard to know how seriously people really took it. Uh, they kind of ascribed divinity to, to Caesars after they died. Um, and it feels like maybe people were participating in the imperial cult to curry favor with the emperor. Uh, never heard of anybody doing that. Um, but practically and functionally in this pluralistic Roman Empire, where you have people from a lot of different cultures and religions, uh, the functional deity was the emperor. Uh, the real world, where real power is, where real things happen, uh, lies politically with the emperor in Rome. And uh, most everybody seemed pretty willing to sign off on that and uh, live their lives in light of that. And so you started to see 
uh, language being used by the Caesars that really are attributable only to God. Um, Augustus Caesar, you know, credited himself with bringing peace to the world and being the one to unify all these different cultures and religions uh, around one central person and one central political movement. Um, they established freedom of travel that increased commerce and wealth immensely. And of course, the Caesars were credited with that. They uh, credited themselves with bringing justice to the world as the true king of all the nations. Uh, salvation for the world from chaos that wouldn't have existed without the Pax Romana. And so the Caesars uh, drew these titles and credits to themselves, um, and they started to use language that's familiar to us uh, because it's language that Paul co-opts when he starts talking about uh, the gospel of Jesus. Uh, when a king would accede to the throne, or even when a king's birthday was announced, this would be brought by heralds who were bringing euangelion, which is good news, or it's the word Paul uses for gospel. Uh, the good news is that a king has acceded to the throne. The good news is that it's his birthday now. Uh, the Caesars took on themselves the title Curios, which is Lord, familiar to Christians, because this is the title that we know Jesus by. Um, when an emperor would come from, for a royal visit, uh, it would be announced as his parousia, his coming, which is the language the New Testament writers use to talk about Jesus' second coming to finally uh, finish the work he's done of setting the world back to rights. So, Evangel, Curios, Parousia, when Paul starts to talk in Romans about the gospel of Jesus that he's bringing, he says, I'm bringing you the euangelion, the good news of the true king, who's the king of all the nations, and he's been declared to be so by his resurrection from the dead. Uh, he's uh, way more a king and rescuer than Caesar ever could be or would be. And he's coming, it says in verse 6, to demand allegiance from all nations, which uh, Caesar himself demanded. He's called uh, Curios, Jesus Christ the Lord, at the end of verse 4 here. And uh, the Lord is, is Curios, the Caesar's title he takes. Jesus the Messiah, the Lord. And uh, he says in verse 17 that he's establishing uh, the true justice of God in the world himself, uh, not the putative justice that the Caesars brought. And so when you read this language and you read this language in Rome, it's easy to think that what Paul's doing here is sticking a finger in the eye of the imperial cult, that he's parodying the imperial cult. And so uh, for the Christians living in Rome, they're taught, don't do as the Romans do. Don't put your faith and trust in the emperor. Don't be drawn into the imperial cult. You have a different king. You have a real king and who has real power. So the good thing is that American Christians are never tempted by such things, and so pity the poor Romans, right? Uh, we would never subjugate our faith in Jesus uh, to uh, some sort of political cause. You know, that, that could never happen to us. Uh, we would never look at politics as being the, the center of real power in the world where real things happen, important things, practical things, uh, you know, not just naive, unreal, airy-fairy kind of uh, religious things. Politics is the real world, I think we all understand. Or at least that's how we're drawn into the imperial cult here. Uh, give you an example. The, uh, you hear people mock 
um, the thoughts and prayers sentiment. Say something bad has happened and we say our thoughts and prayers are with you, which sounds like a kind thing to say. It's mocked because it's often used as an excuse for actually doing anything about a problem. And rightly so, you know, you can say thoughts and prayers and not do anything and be off the hook. But embedded in the, in the mocking is the notion that prayer is really nothing. That prayer doesn't really do anything. And it shouldn't need to be taken seriously by us. You know, it's just, it's unreal and useless. And that's a habit of the imperial cult. That's a habit of doing as the Romans do and thinking that all real power is political power in the city of man. So, first thing, when in Rome, don't do as the Romans do. So the second thing though is when in Rome, don't do as you've done in Athens. Don't do as you've done in Athens. Um, and that is Gentile religion is not enough. It's not enough. Um, there was an odd, uh, situation for the church in Rome because several years before Paul was writing, uh, Emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from the city. And so that included the Jewish Christians. And so the church was predominantly Gentile. Everyone that was left in the church was Gentile. And then by the time Paul's writing, Jews are starting to come back into the city. Um, but it was kind of socially awkward for the Gentiles to think about their connection to the Jewish Christians. They were practicing some social distancing from the Jewish Christians because it wasn't cool. Um, it hurt their status to associate with the Jewish Christians. And um, Paul is saying, you Gentile Christians are going to have to come to terms with how inextricably Jewish the Christian faith is. How Jewish the Christian faith is. Um, he uses an example later in his letter where he says that God's people are like an olive tree and the Jews are the natural branches on it and Gentiles are wild olive branches that have been grafted into the one tree. Uh, that is, Gentiles are brought into a Jewish religion. Christianity is Jewish. All right? it, we worship the Jewish Messiah, uh, the one who Paul goes to great lengths here to say is descended from David uh, physically. Uh, that he's the one that has been uh, written about by all the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He says that this is the culmination of what's happened in the Old Testament. This is a Jewish religion. And all through this letter, he quotes the Old Testament over and over again. He thinks we know it a lot better than we probably do. But he's always quoting the Old Testament and not just quoting it as uh, illustrations, stories to make his point. Um, he's quoting the Old Testament as a whole, to say that this whole story of the Old Testament is being fulfilled in Jesus and now through the church. Um, ever since we were promised that um, all the nations will be blessed through Abraham's family and through his seed, ultimately his descendant, the Messiah, um, the whole trajectory of what God is doing with his people in the Old Testament is moving towards Jesus, the Messiah, and now is the culmination of it. So what we have is not a new religion, separate from Judaism, different from Judaism. What we have is the fulfillment and culmination of Judaism. And um, that's a, that was a hard thing to wrap their heads around for these Gentile Christians who weren't real fond of their Jewish relatives. Now, of course, we don't struggle with any problems 
with the Old Testament ourselves or the Jewishness of Christianity, you know. Um, no one ever says the Old Testament was then and the New Testament is now, do they? Except a lot of people do. The American Christianity has uh, pretty well been severed from its Jewish roots and most of its expressions, and it causes us to be superficial. We're not, uh, we're not rooted in the things that Paul says we need to be rooted in uh, to really be uh, followers of Jesus in this, in this place. To give you an example, it's not something that's uh, bad or evil, but, um, you know, people will publish a New Testament with the addition of the Psalms and the Proverbs fairly often. And this is an expedient when uh, more robust publishing isn't possible, and it's a way to get uh, the Bible around other people. I understand that, but it feels like there's an embedded notion in that publication that uh, most of the Old Testament doesn't really matter, that Psalms and Proverbs we're going to include, interestingly, but most of the Old Testament doesn't really matter. And I think it's easy for us to think about Christianity that way, where we're just, uh, don't read the Old Testament much. When we open the Bible to read, we don't think it has that much to do with us. We don't understand how it relates to us very easily. Um, and so there are little habits that lean that way. If you lean really hard that way, you get into the, the bizarro notion of Christian anti-Semitism which would have blown Paul's mind, I feel sure. There's, there's no way to justify uh, an anti-Semitism from a Christian belief because we're the wild olive branches grafted into the tree. Uh, we're the interlopers. We're the ones who've been brought into the Messiah's religion. So Christianity is Jewish, inescapably Jewish. So don't do as you've done in Athens when you're in Rome because Christianity is Jewish. Having said that, when in Rome, don't do as you've done in Jerusalem either. Don't do as you've done in Jerusalem. Because Jewish faith, even though it's in the true God, is not sufficient without trust in the Messiah. It's not sufficient without trust in the Messiah. And Paul makes that exceedingly clear here. As a Jewish man himself, who's converted to faith in Jesus, he says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power through the res resurrection from the dead. And he's been declared Lord and Messiah. And these are not uh, take-it-or-leave-it categories for any of us, and certainly not for someone with the faith of the Old Testament. All right? uh, the Messiah is inescapable. Either Jesus is the Son of God and Messiah, or he is not, um, but there can't be a take-it-or-leave-it attitude towards Jesus. Um, he is going to be the Lord of all the nations. And this commission that uh, the Jewish people were given early on, but almost never lived up to, of being a magnetic influence, uh, drawing people from all the nations, all the nations on earth being blessed through them, drawing them uh, to faith in the true God and to his mercy, uh, is finally being fulfilled. Uh, despite Israel's reluctance all along, it's being fulfilled through Jesus and through the church. Um, and it includes Greeks and barbarians, and Jews are going to have to live in this weird mixed family uh, where Jews and Greeks are together. And their religion that they have loved and prized, and because of which they had been condescending at many points in their history, uh, is now a faith that is openly shared in the mercy of God with goy like us. All right, so trust in Jesus is essential. Uh, it's essential to right relationship with God. It's essential to understanding 
who God is and what it means for us to know him and live with him in this world. So it's a good thing for us that we never struggle with keeping Jesus in the center of our religious life, right? Um, like we never use Christianity just as a means to become more moral or spiritual or to find blessings from God, um, except that we do, and it would be easy to characterize the whole American church uh, the way Christian Smith did. He said, our real faith is not in the gospel of Jesus and what he's come to do in his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, our real faith is what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. You may have heard that term mentioned around. And listen to the tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism and think how normal they sound and how little Jesus is essential to any of them. I got five of them. So these are the tenets of moral, moralistic therapeutic deism. One, God created the world. That's good. That's right. Two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Oh, okay. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. It sounds normal to us. It doesn't sound like Paul very much, does it? Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, that sounds like what most people I know believe. Um, and I think it's easy for Christians to start thinking of their faith in such general terms where God is sort of there but not really involved in our lives, where people can be good enough on their own to go to heaven and don't really need a savior like Jesus, uh, where Christianity is really just about being nice and fair to other people. And you never get that impression from anything in the Bible, really. Uh, but it's easy to have religion without Jesus. It's easy to have Christianity without Jesus. It's oddly easy to do. And uh, what Paul is telling the people in Rome is, look, this cannot be. <laughs> this cannot be. Jesus has to be at the center of everything about your life and everything about your church and your lives as his followers, even in the middle of the city of Rome. Jesus is inescapable, and he's important always. So um, the idea of being okay and right with God apart from Jesus just doesn't enter to the picture with uh, the religion that Jesus came and brought us. So... If we're not going to, in Rome, do as we did in Jerusalem, what are you supposed to do when you're in Rome? And uh, I'll summarize Paul's answer this way. When in Rome, do as you'll do in the new Jerusalem. Do as you'll do in the city of God, in your real home. In other words, live out the future now. Who you're going to be, where your real home is, that is the thing that gives shape to your life now. And it makes you think of yourself as a pilgrim now. Like, this isn't your home, you're on your way to your home. You're in exile here. And uh, that's why he says things about us. In verse 6, he says, we're called to belong to Jesus, uh, not to the emperor. We're called to belong to Jesus. And that means that we are to be his servants, as Paul describes himself in the first verse, that we're his servants, that his will and his agenda are determinative in our lives, uh, not us just trying to be happy and do what we want to do. Um, so... That makes us odd. And then he says, we're people who are loved by God and called to be saints in verse 7. Loved by God, 
uh, because he is loving, because he's merciful to people like us, and, and uh, set apart, he says, called to be set apart, called to be saints. And set apart means odd, right? You're set apart. You're, you're going to be different because you've been called into relationship with Jesus. That's what he's saying. You're going you're gonna to feel like a foreigner in your own hometown. And because you're going to be in exile there, because it's not really your home. You, you worship a different king. You have allegiance to a different king. You have a different citizenship than the people around you. And that makes you feel odd. It makes you not fit. And if you're a Gentile, you're in this Jewish wannabe religion that makes you odd. It makes you not fit. And if you're a Jew, you're in this weird mixed family with all the goy, which makes you odd and makes you not fit. And so, you know, I'm, even if you shoot the Roman candles, people are likely to think you're crazy if you follow Jesus and you live in the city of God in the middle of the city of man. You just are. So uh, Paul's going to give us a lot of uh, advice, information, and teaching about that as we go through his letter. But for now, just know this, Rome isn't your home. So when you're in Rome, do as you'll do in the new creation. Let's pray. Father, we ask that... Um, you would let us uh, see with your eyes the situation we're in, living where we do. We pray that we would uh, be able to see Tucson the way you do, with uh, love and compassion and mercy, but also uh, as not our home, as a place in which we are pilgrims and exiles. And pray that you'd help us live together as your family in this place, and that you'd bring us safe home to our true home. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.